So we've been making comments for five years now. That's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. This episode of Commons is brought to you by Paytm. With the Paytm Canada app, you can manage, track, and pay all of your bills through the app itself using a credit card, bank account, or Paytm cash. Download the Paytm Canada app or visit paytm.ca to sign up. And this episode is brought to you by the Canadian mattress company ND. They want to offer you the best possible sleep at the fairest possible price. They will ship the mattress to you in a box and you'll get a 100-night free trial to see if you like it. To try it out, visit nd.ca, that's E-N-D-Y, and use the promo code COMMONS to get $50 off your first mattress. On this episode of COMMONS... It's as if he was thrown in a black hole, never to come back again. And I've had friends of mine who spent, you know, a long time there. And once they come out, um, it's almost like they this glaze that's over their eyes. It's like it's like they died inside. Today on Commons, we bring you part two of our two-part series on solitary confinement in Canada. We bring you stories of two people with deep connections on the impact that solitary confinement can have. Yusuf Fakiri and Dan Parlo. I'm Hadia Rodrigue. I'm Ryan McMahon. This is Commons. This episode of Commons is brought to you by Andy. Andy is a Canadian sleep brand that is changing the mattress industry. Now, Andy sent me a mattress, and I lost it immediately to my youngest daughter. She loves the thing. In fact, it's helping her get to school on time every day because she's having incredible sleeps. Those are her words. I made her write that down. So one thing my daughter said is she's loving the Andy Comfort Foam. There are millions of microscopic supportive air cells inside this mattress, and she's really, really digging it. They offer a free 100-night trial, and if you don't like the mattress, you send it back to Andy, and they will donate it to a charity. If all of that sounds good to you, use the promo code COMMONS at checkout, and you'll get $50 off your mattress with Andy at Andy.ca.
One of the things that I find most concerning is how often solitary confinement is used with those who have mental health issues. I spoke with a man named Yosef Fakiri, who told me about what happened to his brother Solman, who suffered from schizophrenia. My name is Yusuf Fikiri, and I happen to be the oldest brother of Salman Fikiri. There was five of us. Salman was the second of five. He was always known to be very intelligent and quite athletic. When he was in high school, he played on the, both on the rugby and football team, while at the same time he was a straight-A student. Um, he spoke three languages. So in addition to his native tongue, which was Farsi, he spoke English and Arabic. In his second semester during his first year at the University of Waterloo. He was studying engineering there. He got into a car accident in the spring 2005, and shortly after that accident, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. And although his life's trajectory would forever change, his character as a person didn't change. He taught my mom, you know, how to read Arabic. My two younger brothers, he taught them how to drive. But for me personally, he taught me how to how to get closer to my faith. I mean, he taught me how to pray. As a result of this illness that befell him, my family actually became closer because of him. I believe it's called sleep apnea. You know, he wasn't able to sleep. Um, and uh, sometimes my family members would sleep beside him and stuff. We were with Solomon all the time. For years and years, Solomon was coping, and his family was there supporting him. He was studying, he was learning, he was taking language classes, he was going to the gym and working out. But then in 2016, something happened, and the police were called on Solomon, and he was taken to jail. The day of the incident, my brother was at my sister's house by himself, Um, my sister and the rest of my family were at my parents' house, um, and um, there was an incident that happened with the neighbors, and it was after that incident that he was taken to custody at the Central East Correctional Center. We never saw him physically again. We were not able to see him. It's as if he was thrown in a black hole, never to come back again. I just want to be clear that my brother was not convicted of anything. He was on remand. That's the biggest tragedy in all of it, in that he shouldn't have been there to begin with. He was supposed to be transferred to a facility called Ontario Shores Centre for Mental Health shortly before his death. But he didn't go there because he was waiting for a bed. He was waiting for a bed, Hadia. So, okay, do you know what happened and, you know, why did the police take Solomon into custody? Was the family ever told what happened between him and the neighbours? Um, So what I was able to find out is that Solomon was charged uh, with a count of aggravated assault, a count of assault, and a count of uttering a death threat. Um, But I do know that the charges were dropped. Unfortunately, this was after uh, Solomon had had died. And they never saw him again? Never again. So he was held on remand for 11 days uh, in solitary confinement the entire time, and he died in his cell. People that suffer from mental illness... One of the greatest gifts individuals can get is a strong, solid support. And my family gave that for my brother. And we were always there. But after, as he was taken to custody, we never were able to see him again. 
So that support base, which is in a lot of respects, but almost between life and death, was effectively taken away from him. What reasons were you given for not being able to see him during those 11 days? I wish I could tell you, Hadiya, to this day we have not been given a reason as to why we weren't able to see him. Ryan, Yusuf told me his family drove to the jail and tried to see him four separate times. You cannot see him. They said you cannot see him. This is a situation where someone is at the custodian of the state that's supposed to be taken care of, and his only lifeline is his family, and the very people that can help him, they cut that line from him. I mean, we did not know what was happening. The day that I went to try to see him, I spoke with staff at the facility that Solomon had a mental illness to articulate. I mean, besides the fact that, remember, he's 30 years old at this time. He was diagnosed with schizophrenia at 19. So it's already well documented in these 11 years. Right? But I also articulated. Three days before his death, I testified. In, you know, I was in courthouse. And the nurse testified that day as well um, from the facility. You know, and the next day he was to be ordered to be transferred to Ontario Shores. So I guess why, like, why the intermediary, though? Like, why prison before Ontario Shores? You know, that would, that's a great question. That's a great question. Are prison systems the new hospitals for people with mental illness? It seems like some of them are these days. How did you find out your brother had died? I'll never forget this night. So uh, it was Thursday evening. This is December 15th. Uh, two police officers came and they told my father um, that Solomon had, uh, had died. My family had questions like immediately to the two police officers, you know, what happened? Um, and I think what was articulated to my family was that Solomon died after an interaction with the guards. Um, and uh, that was the answer that we, you know, that that's the only thing that we knew for some time um, that we were told. Um, and then a lot of things ended up happening after that. There's two subsequent investigations that take place. Um, one is the coroner's investigation. These are the medical professionals. And then the police investigation. What we found out, this is coming out of the report, was that Solomon had 50 bruises on his body. A significant number of these bruises were blunt impact trauma. Um, at the time of his death, uh, both his hands and his legs were tied. He was pepper sprayed twice. Um, and he had a spit hood. This came out of the coroner's report. Um, um, and um, we also came to understand that in those 11 days he was in segregation. We came to understand as well that there was, I believe, 20 guards involved. So now imagine his hands are tied, legs are tied, he has a spit hood, and he's pepper sprayed twice. I don't know what, what, why it would require 20 to 30 people to do this to a mentally ill man who needs help. But they did. Were you ever told why he was put in solitary? No. No. Hadia, did Yusuf say whether the reports or the investigation explicitly says that he was killed as a result of the guards' interaction? It doesn't. There's no legal evidence that Solomon's death was a murder, despite major investigative steps being made. So that in, includes a forensic examination of the scene of the death, interviewing dozens of correctional staff, inmates, reviewing the transcript of the 911 call, reviewing the video footage, and so on. But it's been a year and a half since his death, and Solomon's family still has more questions 
than actual answers. The cause of death came as unascertained, meaning that they weren't able to identify um, the medical cause of death. He didn't, he didn't commit suicide. That's, uh, and it was, it was not a natural death. It was an unnatural death. So let's put everything together. Um, you can make a very strong case that at, at the least, uh, you know, somebody, I mean, my brother was assaulted. He was attacked and assaulted. There needs to be de-escalation. There should not be, I mean, my brother was violently attacked by guards. Um, a man who needed help. And Yosef points out that his brother is not the only one. As I've um, learned more and more, unfortunately, during these uh, incidences, during my, uh, you know, fighting for quest to find justice for my brother, and there's a jail in Ottawa called the Ottawa Carlton Detention Center. That same jail, there's two individuals, one a week before Solomon's death. His name was uh, Justin Saint-Amour. He had schizophrenia. He tried to kill himself. He ended up dying at the hospital. And another story was a guy by the name of Cascades, who in February 2017, um, also had schizophrenia in the Ottawa jail, tried to kill himself. He ended up dying. He ended up, uh, you know, these people should not be in, you know, in, in jails, rather in mental health facilities. And in, in Thunder Bay, I, I think around the same time last year, February 2017, there was a guy by the name of Moses Beaver, a First Nations man who had, I think, a history of bipolar disorder, was found dead in his cell. I mean, these are lives that we have to think about. These are not, you know, small incidences. This episode of Commons is brought to you by Paytm. Hadia, did you hear that Paytm now has a points program? I did not. Tell me more about said points program. I'm about to. So you can collect points every time you pay a bill. Basically, you get one point for every dollar you spend, but that's not all. Paytm also has special offers for you to earn bonus points. If you pay three bills in a month, you get 250 bonus points, which feels amazing. You can exchange your points for cash back. Here's how it works. The current offer, you get 50% cash back on a Tim Hortons gift card, 10% cash back on Esso, or 100% cash back on Apple AirPods. The points are on top of all of your credit card points that you get when you pay your bills with your credit card. So you're doubling your rewards when you pay your bills with Paytm. Download the Paytm app today inside of iTunes, Google Play, or visit paytm.ca. Dan Parlow has been studying criminology at Carleton University for the past few years, but academia isn't his first exposure to the prison system. His understanding of incarceration goes much, much deeper than that. Thanks for being on the show, Dan. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. You are a survivor of the 60s scoop, and um, you've been through a lot in, in your life. You connect your lived experience to your studying of criminology today and... and Give us a little bit about what that path was, was like. I was taken out of my community through adoption disclosures, how I found this out. But I was taken from my community at, uh, at the age of three months old 
placed into a non-indigenous home, um, and from there, uh, I basically, for, for, the, for a good part of my life, felt like this individual who was lost. So we grew up in this non-indigenous home where alcohol was, uh, was prevalent, you know, um, in the home, lots of abuse around alcohol, lots of physical abuse, mental abuse, and so on. Growing up, we'd hear things like my adopted mother calling my sister a squaw, calling me a wagon bird, having no idea what, the, what she was even talking about. I found myself as a youngster really, you know, lost um, in many ways. Later on, because of the abuse in the home, being placed in foster homes, group homes, um, training schools, and so on, and then it led into uh, provincial jails and, and penitentiaries. It wasn't until my, my uh, late 20s where I um, found out through an adoption disclosure that, you know, uh, my mother was Ojibwe. And at that point, it didn't really mean much to me. As time went on in my life, I started, you know, being curious because that's who I am, my identity as an Indigenous person. And so uh, from there, it was later on in life moving towards um, learning about my culture, my language, a bit of my language, you know, uh, um, a bit about the spirituality and connection to land, going into ceremonies, uh, which I contribute to me being, you know, uh, out of trouble today. Mm-hmm. At this point in your life, looking back, having spent almost three decades, I, I understand, uh, you know, just about more than half your life in, in prison and in jail. On this side of it, studying criminology, as you look back, what were those three decades like for you? They were a living hell. They were a living hell. Uh, 30 years of my life in prison, a lot of years lost, a lot of regrets, but also uh, I believe that those years were a total waste because I can use the, use those years to help somebody else. Right. Yeah, when I look back at that, uh, those years, uh, it certainly wasn't Indigenous friendly by no means. I look at, I even look at the correlation of, of things that I wasn't even aware of. So for instance, looking at segregation units within Correctional, Service, uh, Correctional Services Canada and other, other prisons were, well, especially back in the day, in the early 80s, where you were placed in a, in a, a segregation cell with um, uh, security clothing on and a blanket and a Bible. Well, for an Indigenous person, that can take on a whole different meaning. Absolutely. Yeah, the blankets and Bibles. There was a lot of damage done to me, you know, and, uh, and you know, not only by the system itself, but even, you know, towards my own self, you know, that, that, I, that I've done. And, you know, I'm still on my healing journey now over those years. And, and I believe that my, my journey is, my healing journey is not something that's just going to, that's a, a month or two. It, it's the rest of my life. As an Anishinaabe brother to you, I, I, I want to tell you that uh, your journey is valuable and it matters to us. And one of the reasons why we wanted to talk to you was to kind of get inside of that journey a little bit. So, so as to kind of let people know what you went through and kind of like taking us inside of that because if Canada is going to move forward in any way and and if we are going to move forward as Indigenous nations we have to really hear some of the tough stuff sometimes and so wh- how old were you when you first um, got in touch with the law when you first faced your first charges and went to jail for the first time? Uh, so my first charges um, as, as a youth actually uh, uh, I was 11 years old. It was my first contact with, with police. Uh, I, uh, as an adult, uh, I went. I went in at the age of 16. There was no Young Offenders Act back then. You were placed into, into an adult prison as a youth. So my first charges was, was an armed robbery. At the age of 16, I, I was really um, 
rebellious towards the system um, and um, com- combative with guards and so on, which led me to Maximum Securities. Your trajectory as a, a 60s scoop survivor and some of that anger that you're talking about, um, was it misplaced or were you being abused inside of the prison by guards and, and others or, or were you just kind of in your own sort of cycle of, of kind of working through what, what you had been through in your life? You know, abuse was just part of the game, if you will, within prisons with guards. Uh, I'm not saying that every guard abused me by no means, um, but I certainly had my fair share where guards that, you know, um, for various reasons, you know, would target me, you know, uh, as being a troublemaker or or, or some kid that needed a tune-up, if you will, right, and uh, straighten them out, right? And uh, I spent a lot of time in, in segregation units, you know, due to misconducts and so on. I was that kid who, who, who fought, who fought guards a lot. You know, I used to fight a lot with guards and, um, and, you know, a lot of that was based upon, um, trauma. Yeah. What, what landed you in solitary the first time? <laughs> um, well, well, actually what landed me in solitary the first time was, um, at, uh, oh, let's see, where was it? Don jail actually. <laughs> and, uh, I had this, this confrontation with a guard he had some he, he had some some words that I won't repeat, profanity not to, towards me, and I took that uh, I took that pretty serious and uh, I uh, swung at him and you know from there I found myself in segregation and um, as a result of that uh, I had other guards come down there and uh, pay me a visit if you will. <laughs> Let, let's st- let's stop there and just just take us through that. You're you're 16 the first time you get sent to segregation. Great. What's what's what is that moment like for you? What do you what do you recall of uh, in in that moment when you got sent? Uh, so segregation back then was a little different than what it is today. Although the harms are still the same, the methods of segregation um, uh, were different back then. So you could be placed in segregation for ten days, three days, or, or so on, um, and with that often came uh, a special diet. So that special diet would consist of um, bean cake, as they call it, right? And they actually stopped using bean cake within the prison system. Um, it was deemed to be cruel and unusual. So this bean cake was this horrid um, uh, loaf that was fed to us uh, three times a day for breakfast, lunch, and supper with a, um, a cup of tea and uh, some sugar. Um, they would um, place you in the cell, a double-door cell. There was no bed in, in the cell. You were, you were not given a mattress. You were given a baby doll, they call it, and a security blanket at nighttime. And there's a hole in the floor uh, where you did your business, and a Bible was given to you. And um, that's how you spent your time. So the methods of segregation have changed, you know, uh, what they once did and what they do now. But the harms are still there, you know, the psychological harms and so on. You were laughing when you said the guards paid you a visit. I can't imagine that would have been... Uh, very funny, but your memory of it, maybe now that you're on the other side of it, is is something that you're able to smile about because you survived and you're still here. Yeah, exactly. You know, I I, I laugh about it because you know um, they didn't break my spirit. That's why. Um, you know, I was able to get through that, and um, regardless of what that system did to me, I'm still here today. Um, and you know, uh, maybe it's a painful laugh too. I guess you could say it was a bit of a painful laugh. You know. <laughs> Yeah, it's never going to not be painful, right? Well, prison, prison is, is not a laughing matter. It's, 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 it is. It's painful. It's, uh, it's traumatizing, you know, and um, 
um, to this day, there are things that have happened there that, you know, uh, that I'm triggered by. And, and sometimes, you know, my, my reaction is that nervous laughter, you know, to, to, to deal with that. Mm-hmm. So, so after that first time in solitary, you end up in solitary a number of times thereafter. What were the other reasons why you would end up in, in solitary? So, one of the institutions where I did a lot of segregation time, um, uh, solitary confinement time, was uh, Millbrook Correctional Center. Uh, Millbrook uh, was also known as Sillybrook. That's what we used to call it because right. the misconducts were often, you know, uh, yeah, ridiculous misconducts such as clothing change. You forgot a pair of socks um, while you're getting charged and, you're, you know, you made up the hole for it and, and things like that. I spent a lot of time there in segregation and, and at Millbrook. It was mainly just, you know, um, the confrontations with correctional staff, you know, and uh, uh, being treated, you know, inhumanely, uh, being treated as a person that felt, or at least that was being pushed upon me as a person who had no value. So, so Dan, you know, you come back into Gen Pop and you're there for a couple of days, but you get sent back to segregation. What goes through your mind when they tell you you're going back there? What, what, what hits you? Anger, 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 because, you know, um, I'm solitary confinement. Yeah, it's it, you're you're treated like a dog, if you will, right? You know, it's um, it's really inhumane. Can you take us through what a what an average day might might be like from just from your memory? Um, if you're in a maximum security uh, um, federal institution, you're handcuffed everywhere you go, including a shower, uh, or out to the yard. Uh, then your hands come through a slot. There, uh, uh, they they do take the handcuffs off for you to exercise in, in the yard. Um, Yard time often comes at like six o'clock in the morning when your for eyes first open up, um, and they say, "Do you want yard?" Well, chances are your response is going to be no. You just open your eyes, you know. Um, right. And it's just a way of a way of dealing. It's a, it's a way for them to deal with you know, um, you're not having to to man you know um, the yard or ha- staff wise, right? So they do things like that. Um, back in the day, uh, the, as I mentioned about bean cake and that. Um, you know, you went hungry. I mean, unless you, you know, you went hungry, a lot of people wouldn't eat that, eat, eat the, uh, that loaf that was served to you. Um, so you went hungry you know, for seven to 10 days, whatever the case may be. And more recent years, when I spent time in, in uh, solitary confinement, it was uh, uh, a day spent, you know, um, thinking about the past, thinking about the present, thinking about the future. Uh, just feeling really dis- a lot of despair, uh, having lights on you for the majority of the part of the day can really play on your, on your mind. Um, mm-hmm. you, you experience headaches. I should mention too, that when it comes to solitary confinements and the use of force for, for indigenous peoples, um, more so than anybody else, um, that's used. You mentioned your reaction to learning about going into solitary as, as anger, and the sense of impending violence when you when you learn that you're going to go back. Talk about where you think that anger and that impulse for violence in that reaction when you learn about going being sent back to solitary. Talk talk about that anger a little bit. Sure. So first off, uh, I've never had a correctional officer come to me and said, "Oh, Dan, we got to put you in segregation," you know. And and it's often been done with force to begin with. They came at me with force. So, of course, you know, um, anger is going to be placed there, right? You know, and, and you know, you're, you're going to defend yourself, right? Uh, and I should mention this too. So one thing I, I, I always I found interesting around this is that with the least recent legislation around, you know, um, using segregation units less than, than, than they have in the past, 
uh, where guards union, uh, the union, the guards union has cried out saying, well, there's been more violence that's taken place because of uh, their ability to, to place people in segregation units. I would argue that um, you can cut the heads off, but the roots will remain. And what I mean by that is that if you have inhumane conditions going on to begin with, and people treat it poorly and, and not humane and all these different things, you know, without dignity, without respect, you're going to have people who are going to react to that. Yeah. So I think that, you know, we, we need to be looking at how we're treating people within corrections. You know, personally, I, I, I'm an abolitionist through and through. I don't believe that prisons ever worked. However, uh, they do remain, and I think that, that needs to be looked at and how we how we uh, treat people in there because eventually that person um, will be released from the community. And if you're experiencing these uh, the, these things that, you know, the humane, humane treatment and the lack of respect and no, no dignity and so on, that will uh, definitely play upon uh, your release, unless the correctional, uh, these correctional institutions, you know, uh, address the inhumane treatment and the lack of respect and dignity um, to prisoners. Uh, these, these, these will always be issues, and you know, um, and that's where it stems from. Uh, it's, it certainly isn't because of the lack of of, uh, of solitary confinement units um, and, or the decrease of that. Right? I mean, it, it has everything to do with. Uh, with how somebody's treating there. Your longest stay in solitary was seven months. When you got released that time, what was going through your mind when you got released, and what was what was one of the first things you did when you got out? Uh, for one of the first things that I did when I got out uh, back, well, I was I was a kid back then, so um, I think I, I probably grabbed a, a Big Mac or something. I don't know. I really don't know. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. But um, but yeah, but then you know. Uh, um, you know, I, I started drinking and these things, right, too. That was yeah. a part of it. Right. Um, a lot of the drinking, when I look back at it, when I look back at those years, a lot of the drinking was, was um, yeah, to basically dealing with the trauma I just went through. And I walked into those solitary confinement units being more mistrusting, harder, and colder. I've had friends of mine who spent, you know, a long time there, and once they come out, um, it's almost like they, this glaze that's over their eyes. It's like they, they're, it's like they died inside. Dan, what is the attitude of segregation among incarcerated people? I, I've yet seen anybody come out of, out, out of, uh, the segregation units or, you know, solitary confinement units and, you know, and saying that, uh, my spit in the hole straightened me out. <laughs> I've never, <laughs> ever heard that, you know, never, it's never helped anybody, um, yeah. You know, not that I know of anyways. Um, everybody that I know that's come out of there has talked about the harms it's done to them, not the good. Do people ever choose to be segregated? Yeah, there, there, are, there, are, there are individuals who, who opt to, to go into segregation for various reasons. Um, some, for, for they just want quiet time. There are those who opt to go into segregation for, for safety concerns as well, right? Um, or the administration deeming that they're unsafe. If people are opting to go into segregation for quiet time, then I think that correction should be looking at why that is. Right. What misconceptions do you think people have about the people who are put in solitary when we hear about these stories? That they deserved it is one of them. <laughs> That's a misconception. Yeah. Trust me, that they deserved it. And once again, I put the onus upon the state. And um, as, as, as the creator of, of any, any type of reaction, uh, based upon their own violence, you know, tendencies, you know, state violence towards prisoners. That, I believe the onus is on them. You know, you, you cannot treat people that way and expect 
um, good things that come from it. I mean, it's, it, I mean, it, it, it gets as it gets as raw as this asking for a toilet paper roll, and you know, um, being being you know uh, dismissed over it for for hours or until later on that day over a friggin' toilet paper roll, and you know, tensions build, things like that. These are small scale things, but they, they, but when you combine a bunch of small scale things, they add up, and you know, it's often well. Uh, we're short-staffed. We're this. We're that. You know, and 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 you know the need. You know the need to, to um, as as they think, anyways, the need to build bigger prisons to, and have more staff as a solution is not. With with, um, you know, growing up in prison essentially, and and kind of looking back on it now, what has criminology studies done in terms of your perspective on prisons and how they function? And and how does that sort of weave in and out of your your understanding of your own circumstances? It's given me the ability to articulate um, my feelings around uh, and my experiences around prison. Where at one time that wasn't the case, I I uh, acted out um, physically and so on. Uh, my it's changed my perspectives, especially as an Indigenous person. That um, first off, this is Turtle Island, and um, and that uh, any prison built upon this land is illegal. Mm. And so um, I, I think that and this is something that's really important. It's opened my eyes. And also, as an indigenous person, understanding um, what, what, the, what these prisons really are for indigenous people. And they are, as mentioned, um, the, the new residential schools where the loss of culture, language, and spirituality and connection to land take place. I guess what I... Um, what I can walk away with saying with this is that for an indigenous person, not only does it lock our bodies up, but it locks our spirits up. And that's worse than anything you could possibly do to an indigenous person is lock their spirit up. Mm-hmm. Dan, you you've, are clearly dedicating your professional life and, and the rest of your life and your career to this space. And you've had all of these experiences what does your life look like today, and and how are you moving forward and choosing to live uh, your life now? Well, my brother, my life is my life is certainly not you know uh, a rose garden. I still do, I still have my struggles by by all means, and that's that's something that you know uh, you know that I that I walk with in my journey. And um, however, it has gotten better. Um, and and once again, I, I I think this is so important that the connection to community. It wasn't prisons. That that helped me. It was finding my resources, you know, my right. within the community is what helped me. It certainly wasn't, you know, um, being locked up for thirty some years and all, you know, and all of a sudden that hey, we did a great job with this guy. That right. wasn't the case. It was right. finding my resources in the community, being connected to culture, language, uh, spirituality, and a bit of language that I'm learning. Right, those are the things that saved my save my ass, if you will. Right, it wasn't those colonial programs within corrections that helped me. And I can tell you this, my friend, I can tell you this, you know, at the end of the day, I, I've been in courtrooms where the only people left after it was all said and done with was the judge, my lawyer, you know, and the crown. And where they decided they can make an example of me. At the end of the day, nobody really cared. I, it hit the papers for a day and then people moved on their lives forgetting about it. So, um, and not once did I ever think that, geez, I'm going to get seven years if I commit this crime 
not once would I ever think about that doing a crime. It was often based upon need or whatever the case may be. You know, so longer prison sentences sentences were not um, a deterrent to me. Okay, you know, so nor have they been for anybody else. So I think that you know, moving away from prison, long prison sentences, prisons in general is something that we need to be looking at. Dan, this has been um, an absolute honor. Thank you so much for being on uh, Canada Land Commons and uh, taking the time to share your story with us. No, keep me Thank you. So Ryan, after listening to all of this, what do you think the point of prison is? Prison is a place where we put sick people. And, you know, it's it's a place that becomes the de facto or default response to not having proper services in communities. It becomes the de facto place where we put people that inconvenience the system, people that put too much stress on the system. It's an easy answer to very difficult and challenging problems inside of communities across this country. And where I'm left at the end of these two episodes is um, I'm angry about that. I'm, I'm angry that we, we throw away vulnerable people. And I'm angry that instead of responding with kindness and compassion in a country that is supposedly built on those principles, that it's, it's, it's much easier to deal with it in this way than it is to actually look at ourselves as communities and say, where are the gaps? Where are people falling through these gaps? How, how, do, we, how do we address those gaps? So one thing Yusuf told me is that um, he's fighting for justice. You know, he's got a movement. There's a Facebook page. Um, and what he sees as justice for his brother is having the people who uh, contribute to his death being criminally charged. Uh, but he also, as a form of justice, wants to see this never happen to anyone ever again. It's an interesting question of justice, isn't it? For, for, for those of us from, from racialized communities, we, we hear calls for justice, even though justice is never served to us or for us. And that's a big question I have coming out of our conversation with Dan as well, is you know, this, this sense of justice in the Tina Fontaine murder or the Colton Bushy murder. You know, the indigenous community is calling for justice from a system that can't or doesn't deliver justice to it. And so that question of justice is, is one that lingers and perhaps is one that we'll pick up in future episodes because I think that's a really, really fascinating question. What does that mean for us in our communities? That's our Commons episode for this week. I'm Hadia Rodrigue. And I'm Ryan McMahon. We want to hear from you. You can tweet at us at Canada Land Commons. That's Canada Land CMNS. This episode is produced by Abby Madan, and our music is produced by Nathan Burley. If you want to get at us, you know where to find us. And if you like what we do, please support us on Patreon.
So we've been making comments for five years now. That's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer.